Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bookaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. Well, it is the long-awaited infamous chapter where Ned is beheaded. And I wasn't sure how to cover this. I went through a lot of options in my mind, and I thought, you know what? I'll try something new. I will make this a fans podcast. So this is a roundtable, like I did before, but these are fans who I've only ever met online. I've never actually talked to any of these fans before this podcast. We've only ever had interesting email back and forth. So I was super excited to get to talk to these folks, because I know that they all have interesting takes on A Game of Thrones. The first is Allison, and I would just mention that Allison is will be starting a podcast with her daughter called Only Podcasts in the Building to cover Only Murders in the Building. You might want to check that out. Next is Evan Wazorek. Evan's wife has a brewery in St. Louis. It's called Bluewood Brewing, so you might want to check that out. Finally, Tara Schmidt. Tara Schmidt is an artist who lives in Alaska. You can find Tara and her pottery on Instagram at tschmidtpottery. All right, without further ado, here is Allison and Evan and Tara. And then I thought, let's just make it a fans thing. I'll just grab people who I've had entertaining (laughs) conversations with over email, and uh, we'll make it a fans podcast. We're the fans that have pestered you the most. (laughs) Yeah, I wouldn't use the word pestered, but... um, (laughs) But no, absolutely. There's a reason why I decided to take our relationship to the next level. <laughs> Yay! So we, we've gone from email to a Zoom conversation, right? So, so now we can officially start stalking you. <laughs> and by you. <laughs> All right. Wonderful. And just so everyone can kind of gauge who we are and what our voices sound like, I'm Anthony. I'm Allison. I'm Evan. And I'm Tara. Okay, so I think what we should do is I should just jump right into the chapter. I'll read my synopsis. And then we've uh, selected names at random earlier. And then Allison, you'll go first. And then Evan and then Tara. Sounds good. All right, here's my synopsis. Arya is hungry on the street of flour. Catching pigeons is easy. But the best she can do is trade them for a bowl of brown and day-old bread. And going to that part of Flea Bottom is dangerous. She's been beaten, chased, and robbed there. So most nights she goes to bed hungry. She has needle and her wooden practice sword. These have kept her alive, but even more valuable are her eyes. She continues to practice seeing in the way that Sirio has taught her to see. She sees that the Wind Witch is still at dock, but she also sees that the men dressed in stark colors are strangers whereas they only see her as a boy. Arya hears that the king's hand is being taken to Baylor Sept. Arya follows the crowd and arrives at the foot of the statue of the same name. She climbs up the base and watches from Baylor's feet. She sees her father, thin and hobbled. She sees Joffrey and the entire council. She sees the guard, including the hound. And she sees Sansa and wonders why she looks so happy. Her father confesses to treason. The High Septon says a few words about the gods. Then Joffrey commands Sir Illyn to behead Eddard Stark. Arya tries her best to hack her way through the crowd, but she's grabbed by Yorin 
and spirited away. He calls her boy and cuts her hair. So, Allison, what do you want to talk about? A character, a theme, a plot point, or shall we, as a group, climb the ladder of chaos? I have, well, I was going to suggest starting with a specific theme, but eventually I'm sure it will just devolve into a ladder of chaos situation. That's what we always hope. That's what we, exactly. It always does. (laughs) Um, But that might be helpful to explain to the listeners that I am a show only fan and this is the first time you've read oh, this chapter. Wow. And this is the first time I've read the chapter. I didn't even. Which I was... brings a certain <laughs> amount of, brings a spirit of fresh eyes to a chapter where eyes are a major theme, right? You are very kind. Yes. Yes, they are. And I thought one of the most shocking things reading this chapter was it actually called to me the end of season eight, where mm. Tyrion suggests why Bran should be king. And it's because he has the best story, sort mm. of, you know, he is the, the story that's going to convince the populace. And the reason that it brought it to mind was there's such a focus on the everyday person in this story. We act, Whereas when I watch the show, I feel like you get very little of that. I mean, there are a few characters that they bring in, but really it's focused on the ruling class and the guards and everyone directly connected with them. Oh, you mean that this chapter really kind of shows flea bottom and sort of, yes, all of the different personalities Mm -hmm. at flea bottom. Yes. And more specifically their relationship to and understanding of the ruling class. I thought it was just so fascinating when they are throwing around all these theories about what the tolling of the, of the bells meant obviously the king is dead but mm-hmm. how and all these rumors start flying around and i felt that it immediately sort of called to mind just how um fortunate is not the right word but just how t- uh skillful Littlefinger is and Varys is in really starting to understand the currents of the society that is being yeah. ruled and using these to their benefit but that Except for them, this is kind of an untapped relationship. Like, it seemed like the ruling class kind of manages the population by making sure they're well-fed or enough, you know, fed enough. But really, they don't have that much control over them until Marjorie comes through later. Although it's brief, but, you know, she's at least in the in the TV series, she's shown as trying to forge and establish a relationship with the populace and... At the very end of the TV series, when they explain why Bran should be king, I was kind of left going, eh, because I didn't think that that was a theme that was all that well established. And yet here, I feel like the groundwork's starting to be laid down. So I was really curious as a fan, as a TV fan only, if this is a theme that pervades the rest of the book series, or if this is sort of a one time only um, insight into the population of King's Landing. What do you all think? Yeah, Allison, I actually, I took note of that in the chapter as well. And I was thinking about um, rumor as like the way that the citizenry is sort of putting out, you know, not just two versions of the truth, but like 10. (laughs) And um, (laughs) I feel like we live in a time where it does feel like there are different narratives Mm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We haven't mm-hmm. gotten better at this. Yeah. <laughs> but it feels two-sided instead of multifaceted and multi-sided. Sure. And I was noting that yeah. um, the people who are gossiping about it, they're so sure that their version is true, even though they're hearing from each other that there's yes. like, <laughs> yeah. a yeah. dozen. <laughs> um, and to the point of world building, too, is like, um, it is part of the general atmosphere of the books. I've I've read the books and um, watched the show, and um, it makes you uh, view the world in a more whole way, definitely. Mm-hmm. Than, and I think it would be difficult mm-hmm. to achieve that in a TV um, format where, you know, you already have a um, hundred character named characters. Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's probably a little bit of the reason, but I think it's a great way to, um, to explain how the, how news travels. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
ineffectively in this world. Um, and that can present problems to the characters later on. I was just, I'm glad we're on all on the same page because actually in my notes, like the number one thing I was going to talk about was rumors. So, uh, stole my thunder there, Allison. But <laughs> You're welcome. I would be, <laughs> I would be, you know, Anthony, if you didn't have three fan, if you had a round table with Carol and Jana, uh, I would be really interested to know, like in, you know, medieval Europe did, yeah. rumors ever like change the machinations of you know royal houses going back to today one of the reasons i was really struck with that is i went to college in dc and like i went to that bar that the pizzagate scandal happened where that guy went with a gun (laughs) oh you went Um, did you go to the basement (laughs) (laughs) i never went in the basement so i don't know i don't know Uh but seemed pretty normal to me but like there are like all we were kind of alluding it to in today's world there's all these things that kind of just spiral out of control because these like internet conspiracy theories, which I feel right. like are today's medieval rumors. So like, I'd be really interested. Did rumors ever like, I don't know, drive a King of England to do something wild or something like that. Yeah. Interesting. I think that that's exactly how Martin creates his world. I think of, there was only ever rumors of what was, what existed in the East, what existed in Africa and what existed you know, west of Europe, there were only ever rumors to go on. Mm -hmm. You had people travel there, but then those people's stories would like spin way, 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 way. So it's like, it's not like people actually knew whether dragons existed because they seemed as outlandish as elephants. So why would one exist and why, why wouldn't the other exist? Then of course, Martin plays with that, right? He's going to make both elephants and drag dragons exist. Same thing with Richard, right? So if you look at Richard's, the rumors of him, you know, his body's twisted and he's, you know, he's got a limp and he's, you know, he's just, it's supposed to be a mirror of his soul and his disability. And I think that that's exactly how Tyrion comes into existence, it's it's the rumors of Richard the Third huh. that creates Tyrion as a character. So I think that those those rumors are super important. And in this chapter in particular, it's all of the stories, right? It's all of the stories about what happened to the hand of the king. And there's like like you said, there's like what five or six of them, mm-hmm. and we do mm-hmm. get the right one. You know, there's there's the right one is in there. But it's it's mixed around with all of the other rumors. And so as a commoner, you're not really sure what is true and what's not. So you really kind of glom onto the one that's most entertaining at the in the end, I think. Yeah, but there's also so there's the function of the rumors within the chapter for what they are telling Arya. And then there's also the function of the rumors in the chapter for what they are telling the audience, which okay. is the world building, but also like your experience reading the book for the first time is you kind of know what happened and you're picking through all these different options to see if it's there. Mm. Um, and you're just kind of um, trying to figure out what's going to happen next. So you're in the same boat as Arya. Well, and Arya is a great thing. So Allison, you're, one of your questions was, is this a major theme? And I think it's a major theme for Arya. Hmm. And the reason why I'm thinking that is that when she goes, becomes an actress and she kind of sees the whole stage performance of this event oh, later on, that's all based on the popular narratives about the ruling class, right? Sure. Well, and I feel like there's also a, a big theme of perception in this chapter and it makes sense that's in connection with her because she ultimately learns how to deceive people's perceptions of herself in order to help control those narratives and help, I guess, contribute to right. the direction of, of, of the actual events. Yeah, that's a great observation, Allison. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm going to read a little portion. We're going to jump right to the heart of... The chapter here, and this, like we've been talking about on this podcast, this could be the climax of the entire book. Sir Illyn drew a two-handed greatsword from the scabbard on his back. As he lifted the blade above his head, sunlight seemed 
to ripple and dance down the dark metal, glinting off an edge sharper than any razor. Ice, she thought. He has ice. Her tears streamed down her face, blinding her. So as the climax of at least the chapter unfolds, eventually she's blinded, right? She's blinded by her tears. So she doesn't actually see the event. So I thought that was a really, I mean, everything, this scene Mm -hmm. and, you know, her talking about how Sirio taught her to see and she's, you know, she's able to see in a way, it's almost her superpower. She's able to see things for what they really are. And then that is completely taken away from her. Which is so interesting because I feel like, and and this might be faulty understanding just based on the show, but I feel like the true scene that Sirio is trying to teach her is really seen past the obvious and really more understanding the world around her, like mm-hmm. picking up on the subtleties that help her understand that the guards dressed up as Winterfell guards of the boat aren't really from Winterfell. They're probably laying a trap right. for her. Right. So. And yet she's blinded, but she's blinded to the visual world around her, which I would argue is maybe slightly different than the true sight that Sirio is trying to teach her. What's interesting about that scene at the docks, too, is she is she starts crying, actually. And I can't remember the line exactly, but she's like, I'm embarrassed that they'll see me cry. Um, So I I had not put this together until we started talking about it. But Mm. it's interesting Mm -hmm. that like she's able to overcome that blindness and like save herself at the docks. But then when it's her father, I mean, she's not really in risk of being captured at that point, but she's unable to overcome it. Right. The like physical blindness that is from the tears. Right. Right. Yeah. I was noticing in the per or in the paragraph following that, that Yorin grabbing him, grabbing her and telling her not to look is a little bit of an echo of the first chapter or episode where John tells Bran not to look mm. away during mm. an execution. Oh, that's so mm. great. That's, yeah. Despite the fact that Bran is younger than Arya, but it's because he's a boy, right? And Yorin is calling her boy and telling her not to look. And it's this idea of protecting her innocence, mm. um, protecting her mm-hmm. emotion, um, and just protecting her as well as the role of Yorin after this. But I remember the first time reading this thinking like I had to flip back through and be like, did they really do it? Because it never explicitly <laughs> same. said. Uh, same, same. <laughs> Ned's head left his body. It never says that in this chapter. Uh-oh. Yeah, you get it in the show, like for sure. But... Mm-hmm. I reread this the first time I read it in the book because I was unsure of what was happening. So, well, you're kind of in shock. It's like, yeah, it's a little bit like, no, no, they did they what they what they they wouldn't, of course. <laughs> and then, and this is the last Arya chapter of the whole book. Oh, so it's mm-hmm. not like you get her reflecting, you know, before the book ends about what she saw. This is, this is it. This is all you get from Arya. And you can kind of guess from the end of the of the chapter that he's giving her a haircut to disguise her as a boy, but you don't know that for sure. Like mm-hmm. Martin has purposefully worded it in a way that you're not sure if he's scalping mm-hmm. her or what. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. right. Yes. And um, just to go a little bit more onto the sight and looking past the obvious um, that Sirius is trying to teach her, there is so much use of color that George has weaved into this chapter. Uh-huh. Um, it's It seems like it is the common written language almost, or replaces a written language for everyone. Um, the guards, you, you know which house they're supposed to be from based mm-hmm. on the color of their cloaks. Gray seems to be woven into this in in such a almost menacing way. It's no longer this strong color of Winterfell. It's, it's it's Lord Eddard's leg is written about as being, you know, right. rotten and gray. And I think the scepter standing over him is talked about as being aged and old gray skin. And it's it's just interesting. But how he's he- got like a crystal on his crown that sort of. Yes. Creates a rainbow effect whenever he moves. Yeah, a lot of colors in this chapter for sure. And it, it it's an it's an effect that I think Martin uses a lot of King's Landing. And it's it, it might be literary shorthand for 
you have to remember who, who's who and how they look different in your head. Um, so he'll do this every now and again. He'll, you know, he'll make sure that the colors are distinct. So, you know, who's on whose team. Mm. Um, but this happens a lot in King's Landing or in major cities. Uh, just, just very vivid color. And, uh, on the show, they usually, they usually try to tone this down just a tiny bit because you don't want to be, you know, it can't just all look all neon all the time, you know? (laughs) There was a chapter um I I was re-listening to the to the book um a little bit earlier this week and there's a chapter of Eddard where he notices the colors black, white and gray and he he notes to himself all the colors of truth. Oh, interesting. Huh. <laughs> I was like that feels that. like Martin's little commentary. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, um, let's move on to Evan. Evan, would you like to talk about a character, a theme, a plot point, or shall we all climb the ladder of chaos? Um, I don't know if it counts as a theme, so I'm going to say ladder of chaos. Um, One thing I did want to talk about is I have not, so I've read all the books, but I have not read them uh, in a few years. And so I think most of my, a lot of my memories, I'm like fighting off the show uh, from the book perspective but i forgot that this chapter is actually or this scene is from Arya's perspective whereas in the show is from ned's point of view um and i sort of get that with you know having sean bean you know that's like his uh send-off if you will but i find that having it from Arya's perspective is more uh like kind of shocking terrifying um and kind of gut-wrenching than from having it from Ned's perspective, not to take anything away from, you know, Sean Bean or any of the other actors, but I, I was interested in what everyone thought about that. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely more devastating and Germ is really good at figuring out ways to, <laughs> <laughs> to do that. I, I think Arya is a lot of people's favorite character. So she would probably be one of the most devastating and like the, close relationship between her and Ned and well can you imagine any other character in King's Landing that this would be more devastating too well yeah because Sansa's watching it all happen but she's under delusion until he called until Joffrey calls for Illyn so yeah it's almost like Arya's the perfect person to experience in this because of course as we're reading this from Arya's perspective we are seeing it through her eyes and of course we know that her eyes are have been trained right her eyes are trained by Ciri Pharrell and we so we see Flea Bottom very vividly through her eyes she's she's really practicing seeing and then of course here we have the most emotionally connected because she's the youngest daughter. And, you know, we could probably get more emotional if it was Bran or someone else. Cat uh, would be an interesting choice. But who else in King's Landing is going to bring the emotional punch that Arya has in seeing this event? Mm-hmm. And that's so that's so true. And it's so interesting, given how, f- you know, it highlights how fragile she is at that moment and vulnerable And it's so fascinating given where we know the heights that she climbs to. And the fact that she eventually goes blind, right? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a little bit of her, um, the start of her hero's journey, right? Like, Mm -hmm. it allows her to leave, I mean, it forces her to leave everything behind. So one thing that she sees, I mean, if if this is something of her origin story, Mm -hmm. one of the things that she notices, you know, she notices... Everyone up on that pulpit. And she notices that Sans is there and notes that she's, for some stupid reason, she's happy. Even though she's sort of trained to see, it's like all of a sudden that sort of little sister filter gets, gets, gets right in there, right? Yeah, her father's about to be beheaded and she still has room for snarkiness. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> right. So she sees it from her perspective. Sansa just, uh, what, what does she have to be happy about? And interestingly, there's no sympathy when Sansa starts crying. Interesting. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. She doesn't even really pick up. She just notes that she's that Sansa's she just screaming, notes she's screaming, but and crying. Yeah. No. <laughs> uh-huh. So clearly, she had no idea. But you know, forget her, anyways. It's funny. Earlier in the chapter, she's like, you know, she's sort of like looking at these children playing blissfully, and that's from her perspective. Like these kids are just—they're living an innocent child's life. They're playing with a hoop. And she remember she thinks back to Winterfell. She thinks, "Oh man, it would be great if I could just be, you know, playing with Rickon and Bran again, and John would call me little sister and muss my hair." So Arya she's kind of is obsessed with getting her hair mussed. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, "Damn it! If he could only muss my hair!" <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Exactly. She doesn't think about Sansa once. It's like. It's like she, Sansa doesn't even register as a, like a point of nostalgia for her, right? And Sansa forgets about her too. I mean, in the chapter mm-hmm. where, from Sansa's perspective, they're telling her about her um, dad's quote unquote traitorism. Yeah, she. The chapter ends with her saying, "Oh, I forgot to ask about Arya." That's right. It's oh, wow. a mutual ad- omission. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and what is Ned told? Ned's advice is: Look, the pack has to stay together. If we're going to survive, we stay together as a family. And then, of course, this is the furthest thing, right? They're they're not together. They don't even think about each other. Yeah, it uh, knowing where their story goes and where how they, you know, in the show, like unite against a little finger it makes it a lot more satisfying to like that they can work together eventually i hope that's what happens in the books so um tara let's let's uh, move on uh tara schmidt would you like to talk about a character a theme a plot point or shall we continue up the ladder of chaos well i kind of wanted to talk a little bit about Arya as sort of a superhero uh we've been talking about her real sight as like a superpower she develops fighting abilities and in the show certainly she definitely feels like a superhero but in the book she has this vulnerability that is shown through her inner narrative um, particularly about fear and you feel her age a lot more keenly Mm -hmm. in the Mm. book she's nine maybe turning ten in this first book and um, there's a lot of lip biting, there's a lot of tears, mm-hmm. there's a lot of terror, and mm-hmm. um, you experience it a lot more viscerally um, instead of her just um, like stabbing a stable boy and then immediately becoming like a revenge monster, <laughs> 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 which is not exactly how the show is. Um, but it kind of it feels like they give us doses of Arya for like some badassery. Well, and she bloodies herself too. Like she's almost, tr- you know, she's, she's pushed. Mm-hmm. She's almost trampled. Mm-hmm. And like, she, like half of her thumbnail gets Ugh. bent off. Oh, yes. I was like biting my own <laughs> thumb when this is happening. <laughs> right? So she's anything from impervious. Yes. Maybe she's a realer superhero in the book. She's not a superhero yet in this book. I don't know. What are you guys's, um, what superpowers do you think she has? What What do you think about her as this like superhero sort of um, mm-hmm. archetype? I love I loved it when you Tara when you were mentioning that this is almost like her her origin story yeah. uh, as a hero, and I can't really speak to what her superpowers are in the book per se, but this whole chapter felt like her transition moment. And you start to see not, not in that she's instantly turning, like you said, and almost, almost like it happens in the TV series into a revenge monster, but it's, you start to see, you know, kind of the, where she's bottoming out. She seems lost. She's scared. She's literally bleeding and crying. Mm -hmm. And even though she has needle, she is not, 
proactive with needles. Like she's not, she doesn't make any preemptive strikes when she realizes um, who is being hauled up to the marble plinth and what's probably going to end up happening. Instead, she's just praying to the gods, even though she, she's clasping needle um, while she's sitting on top of the, I think it's um, the statue of Baylor, but she's, she's praying. She's just hoping, which I found so fascinating. And I was, it just made me curious if you were to take, the more of the superhero um, version of her from the end of the series and dropped her into the scene, mm-hmm. how differently it would play out, what steps she may or may not have taken. Mm. Um, because I, I mean, ultimately, even though she is a badass at the end, it's just, yeah. there's still a formidable you know amount of guards and the hounds and everyone else up there on the marble pulpit. So uh, it just it she just seems so helpless at this moment. It, yeah, it made what is she me really wonder. gonna do? Even if yeah. she could get up there, what was she gonna do? I don't know. I find it. Uh, you know, I, I know why uh, you guys are using superhero as the analogy, right? Because especially where we know she goes in the show. But I actually was thinking a lot about sports metaphors in a lot of this uh, kind of training, um, and part of that is because I know George is a big a sports fan specifically football yeah he is. Um, no, i'm kidding it's true. and like yeah he's a huge uh gi- i think it's the giants um because this idea of um like you're looking but you're not seeing uh i, I stopped playing football in middle school so i'm not like a professional but that's like a big trope in a lot of football movies like you know this young athlete he's whatever joining the high school team for the first time uh and he's got to like learn these subtle cues um, so I was actually wondering if, when he was writing this, was he kind of more influenced by sports than by modern superheroes? She is kind of in a scrum there at the end. Like, she can't get through the line, right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? She's, and she's, yeah. she has to run up a woman's back oh, to try God. to get away. <laughs> yep. She's tackled by urine. Can, <laughs> sort of, can we take right. a moment and just pay homage to all the people she possibly accidentally killed with needle when she was <laughs> making her way <laughs> She's like slicing away yeah. at people and they never say what happened to anybody. Mm-hmm. They must have been screaming for their lives. Yeah, that's a Black Friday you don't want to go to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was thinking the same thing. I was thinking, yeah, that's about a dozen holes. Right? Who knows? Yeah. Like, a few of those have got to be fatal and she's probably t- taken off a few toes and fingers and... I like the super. I, I like the superheroes uh, thing, and I'm thinking, okay, yes, she has. She almost has this X-ray vision kind of eyesight. She can see through disguises, right? So, and she knows that other people don't have this superpower, so she can disguise herself as a boy and kind of go with it. She does invisibility. That with, yeah, and so the, mm-hmm. yes, so she can be invisible if she wants to. And which is interesting because I think that early on she doesn't like to feel invisible. Like she doesn't mm-hmm. like to be called Arya Underfoot because, you know, no one saw her and they like stepped over her or something. Mm. Now she's using that as kind of her to her ability. But in addition to that, like if you gave me a wooden sword and told me to like slice a pigeon out of the air, <laughs> I don't yeah. think I'm going to be able to do that. Yeah. I, I mean,. She's got this wooden sword that she can fend off a girl that's much older than her. Um, so she's she's using this practice sword to survive. And I think it's maybe the sort of a budding, you know, swordsmanship that she's she hasn't quite mastered yet. But, you know, she can absolutely use that wooden sword to both kill a pigeon and fend off a would-be robber or something like that yes and evan more to your point of what you were saying about this being a sports metaphor of seeing what's really happening i mean she must with that pigeon that you were talking about anthony she must have been seeing where it was going to go because she catches it midair mm-hmm. um i don't think anyone's oh, reflexes sure. are quite that fast she must have had an idea okay it's gonna fly off this way and she was ready for that um mm-hmm. and she ate it raw <laughs> sure oh she does she they allude to the fact that she's eaten them raw in the past yeah survive and hats off to her at that that right there might be a superpower as well because i'm not sure if i was on the brink of hunger if i could do that 
I mean, boxers eat raw eggs, you know? It's the same, it's the <laughs> yeah. same thing. Yeah, I'll be impressed when I see a yeah, boxer yeah. eat a raw pigeon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Anthony, one thing I thought was, so you had talked about, um, you know, she has these abilities to kind of blend in and be invisible. Um, but she's not, a, she can do that a lot with adults, but it's kind of alluded to in the chapter. She can't really do that with children. Mm. Um, you know, she at some point says like she just really wanted to make a friend, but every time she talks to them, they run away. And I assume that's because like she kind of like in the show when she's pretending to be a servant girl for um, the Lannisters, like she can't hide. She's like she her has the wrong royal way of speaking. Yeah. So they like run away. So it's interesting that, you know, she can fool all these guards, but she can't fool. Yeah. She children. reflects on this. She thinks, I, th- I think I might've said something wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it, her voice is giving her away. Like these, these kids are looking at her really strangely uh, because I don't think that she has figured out how to talk with a flea bottom accent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And... Or maybe it's all the dried pigeon blood on her chin. <laughs> <laughs> Just... I think she's a vampire or something. They're looking at her askance. Because she has a bloody chin. <laughs> oh, goodness. Of course, you know, she does, She has not honed any of her powers yet. But uh, we see little, you know, little hints, little hints that she's on her journey, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not exclusive to Arya where there are characters in the books that are turning various hardships into gifts, for like future abilities kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like the fact that John was murdered in a mutiny released him from his vows till death and mm-hmm. he was then mm-hmm. able to ascend mm-hmm. to like the king in the north. And so these hard things that the characters are going through um, eventually turn into like her being blind makes her a better fighter, you know, that kind of yeah. thing. Um, what stuck out to me in this chapter is, um, going back to like her, um, experience of fear, um, and Sansa certainly experiences it too. The, I mean, they're both children, but, um, Serio's teaching with like hacking the pigeon out of the midair, hmm. he has these sort of idioms that she repeats to herself, you know, swift as a deer. And the one that she repeats in the previous chapter over and over again is um, it's something like... Uh, fear cuts deeper than swords? Yes, fear cuts deeper than swords. Hmm. <laughs> I, was getting, I was getting mixed up because it reminded me of Dune, which is fear is the mind killer. <laughs> uh-huh. But yeah, same, but same. very similar idea. Yeah, and Star Wars, fear leads to the dark side and, you know... So I think these heroes' narratives often play with the idea of fear and that fear has some type of role um, in, like, overcoming fear has a role in becoming a hero. Hmm. Oh. Hmm, I like that. Okay. Is there anything else about this chapter that we didn't mention that we should have? I had a question for you, Anthony. Um mm. I, I, I know in podcast past and at the beginning of this one, uh, you questioned whether or not the climax is really when um, her father is beheaded. Mm-hmm. And I was curious, uh, from a TV standpoint, when his head is, is lopped off, I mean, I, I think with everyone else, I was in utter shock. And for me, it definitely felt like the climax of that yeah, first agree. season. But yeah. I'm curious from reading the book, what your perspective is on that. Yeah. Let me get other people's perspective first. Tara, what do you think the climax of this book is? Um, I think, I think it's a multi peaked climax. <laughs> oh, right. Um, I think, um, the stuff with Miri Mazdar, um, in the tent and, what happens to Danny and losing her, you know, losing. Yeah. That stuff is also climactic to her narrative. Yeah. 
So I would include that in there. And I, I don't think that there's one distinct peak, which makes it a more interesting book to read. I mean, it's a long book, too. So it would be a sh- it would be a much shorter book if this were the only climax. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about I you, agree Evan? with that. Yeah, go ahead. yeah, I was gonna say I agree with that multi uh, peak theory because I think um, personally I think there's two. I th- and I I actually disagree with this because I think there's one for uh, Westeros and one for Essos, and so Essos mm. is obviously uh, Danny. I think the King in the North scene, which I believe is in two chapters, is uh, where they mm. nominate Rob to be King of the North because um, I think. Yes, like you losing Ned is uh, shock. Every, everything we've said, right? Shocking, mortifying, etc. I think, given what we know so far, it can still be overcome via negotiation, especially because they've captured Jamie Lannister. Whereas once Rob is named King in the North, there's really no going back because I don't think the Lannisters are going to accept anything less than fealty. Um, so that's why I would say. Uh, the King of the North is just because of that, the mm. ramifications of that scene. That's interesting. Yeah, I like I like what Tara says about the sort of the multi-peaked climax. I think I did get another email from someone that suggested something similar. Um, hmm. I do think that we should mention, we should kind of call out that Ned has the most chapters... Ned has the most spoken words. Ned is presented in a multi, you know, POV book as the character whose point of view kind of represents a main character's point of view. Hmm. And so the so it makes me wonder, shouldn't the climax of the book come in one of those chapters? And I think that that's initially why I thought maybe it's when Littlefinger holds the knife to Ned's throat and says, I told you not to trust me. Um, I think that that is when Littlefinger and Cersei and all of the King's Landing con- you know, conspirators, that's when they win and Ned loses. And that's what this is. This, this is a game of thrones and Ned loses the game in that scene. So that makes me think, okay, maybe that's it. I think we have to wonder when does the rising action stop, right? So we've got this building action, building action. You know, we've got the, you know, the scene with Danny. We've got the, you know, the the battle scene with Tyrion. We've got the battle of Whispering Wood, and then we've got this scene in at the Sept of Baelor. When Ned is beheaded. Immediately, the next chapter is the serene news of, you know, the serene life at Winterfell again. And Bran will get the news of Ned's death. And it feels like something major happened. And now I'm dealing with falling action at that point. So I guess that's a long way to say that I think you can make a really good argument for two or three different chapters in this book. And um, and if someone wanted to say, yeah, this actually is, it doesn't matter that Arya doesn't see it. This is the absolutely the climax of the book. It's hard to argue with that. It would be hard to argue with it. But I'm not, I have not sort of come to any like specific chapter. It seems like the climax is somewhere in here, right? <laughs> it's got to be, if it's not this chapter, it's like really close to this chapter. Maybe yeah. it's... Um... Maybe yeah. it, it feels like it should be because it's such an emotional gut punch. Whereas when you when Littlefinger puts the knife to, to Ned, it's more, it, it, you know, strategically, he's off the, the, the game board. He's no longer a power player at that point. Sure. And yeah. maybe from that perspective, it's more of the climax. Um, because I feel like in this one, from a, from a political standpoint, the beheading of Ned is not necessarily removing him from the board. He's already been removed. He no longer has mm. any real influence. But what we see is um, a power vacuum for the North or in the North right. and also the rise of Joffrey. I mean, I feel like at this point we now understand he is totally uncontrollable. He went from being mm. uh, obnoxious and spoiled and kind of having mm-hmm. his mother wrapped around his finger 
to being absolutely out of her control and understand. And now we understand it to be completely bloodthirsty and unreliable as a person, which is such a dangerous character to have in the role (laughs) of being king. (laughs) And so I feel like it's almost setting up the groundwork for the new evil because as George, I love this, right? Well, I love this as George. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that if this is sort of Arya's origin story as the hero, it makes sense that this is something of Joffrey's origin story as (laughs) the new big baddie, you know? Yeah. Yeah. To me, the, um, the, evidence that you were putting forward Anthony about like he's got the most words he's got the most chapters is not necessarily evidence for a plot climax so much as a plot twist and that those are a little bit different and there is a little bit of falling action but and then it rises up again so um that's true but I I love what you're saying Allison about how it sets up the next phase of storytelling um, because, uh, just yesterday I was watching, or I was linked to this video, um, where the developers of South Park, <laughs> Trey Parker and Matt Stone, like crashed an NYU writing class. They, what they shared with the class was that in an effective story, the connective words in your outline should never be and then. They should show causation. So the connective words are but or therefore. So Ned falsely confesses, but he gets to, to he- um, beheaded anyway. And that mm-hmm. is more a more engaging sort of pivot than one thing following another, following another. And there's a lot of causation and there's a lot of twists and turns in this story. Mm-hmm. Or you could say Ned is beheaded and therefore, you know, Arya hacks a bunch of people. (laughs) 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 Or therefore, Yorin takes action and, you know, tries to get her out of the city, right? So... Yeah, you know, this sets Arya on the road, and and the rest of her narrative is going to be sort of on this road. Um, and the reason why that is, is she had to flee King's Landing. So Ned's, you know, Ned's big the the big vacuum that Ned creates has consequences for almost everyone in the story that we like. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit less mm-hmm. clear how his beheading has an impact on Danny's narrative at this point. But almost everyone else that has a POV in this story, Ned's beheading is going to significantly alter their course. Yeah, it's not totally out of nowhere either because I had kind of forgotten until I revisited how much the rivalry between the Lannisters and the Starks was ramping up. Hmm. And there's like side talk between the characters about disliking Lannisters or distrusting Lannisters. Um, mm-hmm. And so there is a certain feeling of inevitability, even though it is so shocking. Like after Jamie kills Ned's men and breaks his leg, like that's kind of that word travels north. And that's when Rob starts calling the banners. And um, if Rob hadn't called the banners, he wouldn't have an army to declare him, you know, hmm. King in the North already at, at um, Winterfell. So um, I'm not exactly sure if that is exactly the plot, like how the plot unfolds, um, but something like that, you know, like, so yeah, it's the dominoes falling. Right. Yeah. And I think it's also worth noting that this is, this absolutely does work as a standalone novel, but Martin does have larger narratives in mind, right? So Ned's POV chapters cease, of course, but then you have to, you've got to make up for that loss. And then that's exactly when we start to see the POV characters for Danny increase. It's Danny's Phoenix experience at the end of this book that's going to set the Song of Ice and Fire in motion going forward. This is almost like the prologue for the next book. Danny's story from this point on. Tara, you brought up the idea 
of fear as being a vulnerability for Arya. And I that got me rethinking about the chapter we just read. And I feel like she is able to use at these moments when she remembers this true sight that Sirio is trying to teach her and see the guards are not really those of Winterfell mm. earlier on at the boats. And then also notices that the um, executioner has ice. But when Yorin, who keeps telling her, you know, you're a boy, you're a boy, you know, calling her boy over and over again and mm-hmm. gets her hair obvi- and calling her boy that many times, being a friend from Winterfell or, or from the North, rather, and a friend of her father's and trying to shield her from seeing her father be beheaded. I think a natural conclusion, if one was thinking clearly and was not filled with fear um, and anxiety from having their father recently executed, would be to assume he's going to cut her hair off. But at that moment, George does such a great job of putting us in her shoes. We're really scared that he's going to, at least I was terrified that he was going to um, slit her throat or like you said, Tara, scalp her. And so I felt like, you know, and she's got tears in her eyes. I felt like this was a great point of showing that with the fear in her, she's Mm. not able Mm. to use that true sight and really understand and pick up on the deeper meaning of what's happening at that moment. That's, I think that's really, yes. And I think it's hard for us to re-experience this chapter knowing that Yorn doesn't have her best interests in mind, right? Right. That is right. True. So we we know that Yorn has her best interests in mind, but of course, from her perspective, he's basically a stranger. Like she recognizes him, but he's got bad breath and rotten <laughs> teeth, and he's, he's he's holding his hand. You know, he's shaking her. Right? She, he yeah, keeps shaking her true. over and over again. And right at the end, it's like, yeah, he's cutting her hair, but it feels like she's he he's pulling her scalp out. You know, it's like okay. it's really hard to know how it's it's hard to know how I would have experienced this for the first time if I didn't have the show in my head. Fair. Fair. He is being very rough and violent in his actions because he's so desperate to have her not give away what's actually happening. Well and also I think he actually does not want her to see the beginning. Oh, Yeah. I would agree with that. But he does hand hand needle back to Arya, so that's a little bit of a. That's true. Mm-hmm. He does, you know, that's that's. I'm glad you said that. I, w- I would have forgotten that otherwise. All right, I'm going to call out some notable introductions in this chapter. We have a bowl of brown mentioned for the first time. <laughs> very very vividly, disgustingly. <laughs> um, yeah, bowl of brown with in, with the greasy film on the top. You know, and Arya's trying not to think about the meat the meat in it. Mm. Um, we have all of the gates mentioned, I think, for the first time. Like, we've heard a few about a few of these before, but uh, we get the sense of how big this this walled city actually is. We have the Dragon Gate and the Lion Gate and the Old Gate and the Mud Gate and the Gate of Gods and the King's Gate and the Iron Gate. We also hear of uh, Pig Alley for the first time. So some interesting introductions there. And then the differences in this chapter are really interesting to me. There's a lot. There's a lot of differences here. Uh, we have Arya kind of try to sneak down to the docks. Mm-hmm. Right? She, she's noticed, mm-hmm. you know, she's seen everything. So she sees the gulls. And she, she's thinking, yeah, I don't think I'm going to be able to kill one of them. But that gives her the idea to go down and look at the docks. And she sees that the wind witch is still there and thinks, well, maybe I can still escape in the way that my father wanted me to escape. And, of course, she realizes that this is a trap, right? These are probably Lannister men dressed up as Starks. Um, None of that. None of that's in the show. In addition to that, it's not the High Septon who has this little theological speech on the pulpit. All of those words are given to Pycelle in the show. Mm-hmm. And um, I think initially, we, you know, the first time I was looking at this, I, I I had a little confusion between, like, the Septons and the Maesters. And I think this is probably the, the source of it. Like, I wasn't really sure who the Maesters were. They kind of were dressed like monks, and I thought they might be part of this sort of religious part of the story. And I think that 
part of that is because they gave the high septum's words to 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 uh, Pycelle in this huh. scene. Again, sort of trying to create an economy of characters in a show with lots and lots of characters, right? Um, Cersei was trying to convince... I mean, he said, Joffrey says that Sansa and Cersei were trying to convince him to let Ned take the black. That doesn't really seem like Cersei, though. Well, do you think that would maintain their relationship with the North... Um, rather than since the North seems like it's hard to maintain a relationship with since they always strive for independence at any, any, um, or I guess at the drop of a hat. Do you think she yeah, understands that the power, yeah, yeah. The power vacuum would be created and that might be enough of a cause for them to try and break away? Yeah. Okay. Or is it because that's the narrative? It's like, this is how we're going to show mercy to this guy. He's going to go live up at the wall. But in reality, they're going to keep him alive. There's no way they're sending him to the wall. He's he's a political asset. Mm-hmm. He's going to tell the masses that that's where he's gone, but he's absolutely going to stay in the cells. Hmm. But you're, I'm so glad you mentioned that. I, it absolutely is not like Cersei to send a political asset up north and lose that asset altogether, especially when her father's basically in full-on war with the North at this point. Hmm. Well, I, I do like what Allison said because I could see the Lannisters wanting to put their own person up North. It would pacify the people to know that Ned was, like, taken care of and not dead. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> Anyways, I'm sorry. You were talking about the differences. Yeah, did anyone else notice any well, differences with this chapter in the show depiction? Um, yeah, I, I just want to point out, I don't, the, the description in this chapter of Ned, uh, when he is barely, he's not even standing, he's being propped up by the guards, mm. just made it sound like he was skin and bones and his leg is already mm-hmm. probably mostly dead. He looked like it's the description made it seem like he was on the brink of death. And in the TV series, he, I mean, he didn't look like he was having his best day, but he still looked like he was, he could take a swing at somebody and do some damage. Yeah. He still seemed like he had his full, not his full strength, but not too far away. He wasn't wasting away per se. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like because of that, it was more of a shock for me personally, watching the show to see him beheaded mm-hmm. because he still mm-hmm. seemed like a, vi- like a vital yeah. person uh, in all senses of the word. Whereas if he came up looking like skin and bones, I think it would be easy to understand that his days are, are numbered regardless. Either he's going to be beheaded yeah. or he's going to rot in the jails and, and pass away in a few days. <laughs> it's also, I thought I noticed that too, Allison. I thought it was interesting too, because they describe his clothes and they all sound nice, yes. which I assume is like for the crowd, you put them in nice clothes. Sure. But it's interesting that they, they wouldn't like, okay, let's wait a week. Let him sleep in an actual bed. <laughs> Give him some, you know, give him a bowl of brown Yo, every day. Uh, so that he's not cr- <laughs> uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But just something to like make him appear better. Um, unless like it was always the plan to kill him, I, I would think you'd want to parade him out there a little bit better. Yeah, looking. I got the sense that the that the wolf or the Stark garb mm-hmm. is only for the narrative, right? It's like we want to make sure that yes. everyone sees that the, it's the it's the head of the wolf house that's being beheaded. Yes. He's got to wear the right uniform so that they see that this is what's happening here. Um, otherwise, they absolutely don't care about his well-being at all, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. And maybe it helps them, actually, to your point about how healthy he is. Maybe it helps their the, the perception that the crowd has of him, that he looks mm-hmm. terrible. He's, oh, he's nobody sure. that you're going to root for. Um, exactly. He's somebody that, okay, he's, he's, he, it looks like he's dying anyway. So, yay, let's have a beheading. Yeah. <laughs> The other thing is that I think it probably does indicate a certain amount of passage of time that we don't get in the show. Mm. You know, you get the sense that this is all kind of happening, you know, in a few days. It's like Ned's Ned's captured, gets put in the cell. A few days later, they convince Sansa to say this. Arya's kind of on the street trying to eat and survive. I don't get the sense that weeks have gone by. 
you know. Mm-hmm. Whereas I feel like in this chapter, I do get the sense Arya's been doing this for a while. And Ned yeah, is... Yeah, she knows where to look for pigeons. Yes, right. <laughs> That's true. That implies <laughs> true. she's done it for a bit. She's She's been looking around. Ned's been rotting away. His leg is completely gone, right? So <sighs> I think it's a passage of time thing, too. Which makes the carrying of information between... King's Landing and Winterfell a little bit more mm-hmm. believable. Oh, right. Right, sure. And then, uh, lastly, notable departures, Eddard Stark's head. <laughs> oh, Say well, goodbye. Bye. Right, well, well, wait a second. Don't you mean right. the body? Because then we get to see the head <laughs> later sure. on. Yeah, yeah. It rhymed. Oh my my way rhymed, So, Steve, I thought I would solicit feedback for the new Steve and Anthony joint double dragon. Mm, Yes. Our seven fans have spoken, and it's time for us to create another platform. (laughs) That's that's right. That's right. And uh, so double dragon, as you might have guessed, uh, is dragon adjacent. So we will be covering all kinds of stuff, including... Pete's dragon. <laughs> yeah. Barry Gordy's The Last Dragon. Oh, please. Yes, sir. And House of the Dragon on HBO. Mostly just House of the Dragon, but, I mean, what the heck? What the heck? <laughs> yeah, we're for sure going to cover The Last Dragon. Uh, in fact, we might actually do another podcast, which is just The Last Dragon. <laughs> this is... This is... Call that one The never The Never Ending Dragon. A lot yeah. of karate. A lot of karate themed dragon shows what was the uh what was the dragon one with mcconaughey uh Uh, rain of fire rain of fire yeah 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 never saw never saw rain of fire although yeah i just i have that that image of mcconaughey with like an axe flying through the air in slow motion like that's just permanently just just branded into my brain yeah odd how some movie trailers are just indelibly cemented where the movie itself might be a little bit uh, vague, right? Right, and it's funny because like, I have seen that movie. And in fact, I tried to watch it a second time, but I was just like, you know, there will probably be no, no sequence in this film that's as good as that image. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't I just watch that a bunch? And I did. Uh, so anyway, here's what we're going to do with Double Dragon. Uh, it'll be Steve and I covering Double Dragon. Uh, sorry, it'll be Steve and I. <laughs> <laughs> Just a video game. Uh, we're gonna we're, it, it, see us on Twitch. Uh, we're gonna be playing uh, NES Original Double Dragon. Um, I'll be blue. Anthony will be red. <laughs> uh, I guess I am in a red state now. That, that, That's that true. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, it will be us covering House of the Dragon. But from time to time, I might have uh, one of your favorite. A professor of medieval studies on to answer specific questions about the medieval world. And so if you would help us out, I'd really appreciate it. Just send any questions that you might have about life in the medieval world or politics or anything that you think that might be House of the Dragon adjacent. And go ahead and send those to cocoonsofhorror at gmail.com. Or I suppose you could send those to book at baldmove.com. Either way, that would help us out um what about you steve do you, do you have any questions burning questions that you might want to ask a medievalist um i'm sure i do and i'm sure it has very little to do with their profession well, i did i did get some interesting uh cod piece information recently uh oh, in a in a recent buku episode uh found out it's not not just for looks they, you know these things actually were functional it's for taste. <laughs> oh god! Yeah, yeah, you get them. They they, they come flavored. <laughs> so the same question. the same com- the same company that makes the sir uh, you know the, the, the scented uh, markers. Mm. Um, so question number one: Were cod pieces ever flavored? Oh, I see. I had to jump straight to what's your favorite flavor of cod piece. I don't. 
I don't want. I don't need a lot of backstory. I want. I want to see application of this knowledge. Jeez. <laughs> All right. All I'm right. not saying you eat the cod piece. You don't eat the cod piece. Let's be clear before we start getting uh, hate mm-hmm. mail, which is fine too. Mm-hmm. Hate mail is fine. We'll read it. Um, it's. Uh, it's. You would use the cod piece. Would also function as as a cup. Like to drink out of, like so you could just put plain water in oh. it, but it would take on the flavor of the cod piece. So it it would sort of give like it was like the uh, a Lacroix of the time. <laughs> so are you saying Lacroix takes on the flavor of the can that it's in? Well, if you look at look, La- well, no, it's flavored, right? So like Lacroix, and if you translate it, it is the crotch. This is the kind of stuff that you'll get on our new podcast, Double Dragon. <laughs> and this is why Anthony will pre-record his interviews with medievalists and then go to our segment. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> okay. All right. So, yeah, any questions, book at baldmove.com. Any questions that for a professional medievalist that you would love to have answered? Otherwise, I'll have to ask the questions, and we've already had a glimpse of what that might look like. <laughs> this is on you, people. Any questions about LaCroix, you can send those to at <laughs> OzFest. That's, that's right. That's Steve's Instagram handle. Contact me directly for all your sparkling water queries. 